0: It's super easy. Just go to current.com slash okay, okay, and download the app. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial
1: technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank member FDIC.
0: Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined with CNBC's tech check host, Deirdre Bosa. Deirdre, welcome back.
2: As always, love being here.
0: There you are from the beautiful set at one market of CNBC's. uh, I
2: upgraded my view.
0: I love that view, man. I love being out there. Um, It's so much fun. And we're going to be planning. We got to plan something out there. I got to do a little fast money. We got to do a little tech check. We got a little OK computer, the whole shebang.
2: Maybe a little Warriors game.
0: Oh, I would. Well, well, first of all, down three to one dude. that that is a little hopeful <laughs> here to the L.A. Lakers. So you're
2: talking to a Leafs fan. So I know. So, you know, hope springs eternal.
0: I know you guys are going to you're going to need a little hope.
2: You need a big comeback if you're going to break a curse in the
0: case of the Leafs. And I'll say a lot of these playoff games in both the NHL and the NBA have been going seven, but when you go down three to one, it's not particularly great. All right, listen, you and I have a ton to cover, but we have a big show here. In just a few minutes, I sit down with Rick Heitzman. He is the CEO of FirstMark Capital. We're gonna cover some of the goings on in Q1 earnings, some of the kind of trends that they are seeing over there um, and through the lens of of their investments, their portfolio companies for um, enterprise spending. I also have a great conversation Um, on all things fintech with uh, CTO and co-founder of Current. That would be uh, Trevor Marshall. But first things first, D, I just saw you on the air talking PayPal. The stock is trading at new 52-week and multiple-year lows here, down 11 or so percent. They reported a Q1 that looked good on the surface, but some of the guide is causing investors to Flee the stock here. I actually bought a little on the opening. I want to get your take here because I know this is something that you follow very closely. You know this company, you saw Blocks earnings um, last week. What was your take here on what's going on and why are investors? running from this stock right here?
2: I mean, in a few words, and this is not just a PayPal problem, but it's the commoditization of fintech. The irony of it is that these companies paved the way and they kind of lit a fire under the butts of the big banks to get more innovative, to do more, serve their customers better. But in doing so, they kind of commoditized the services that they offered. And PayPal is just such a remarkable example of this because remember back in 2021, Dan, it was worth more than $350 billion. You have people like David Solomon of Goldman Sachs saying, what is going on here? If I were to split off Marcus, you know, it would be worth more than it is within Goldman Sachs because investors just valued that innovation and that growth that PayPal and Square um, offered. And what a change it's been because, you know, it's now what just north of $70 billion and it's worth less than all of the big banks. And I think that just tells you that you know it's not valued as highly. And when you compare it even to a block, which is what we just did on TechCheck, um, it's far more profitable, right? Kind of any metric you look at, free cash flow, EBITDA, um, EPS. And it, what's interesting here, though, is that investors are valuing the growth and the innovation of block, though I would say not as much as it did a few years ago.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. In my take, and, and, and Trevor and I talk about this a little bit because, you know, they built a company, he and his co-founder Stewart, um, that is very focused on some of the same innovation that, you know, Square and PayPal were rewarded for. And it is truly remarkable that at its highs in 2021, I mean, PayPal had a, a market cap greater than Bank of America, that is the Bank of America.
2: All the big banks except JP Morgan.
0: It's crazy. And you know, listen, I I look at these sometimes through a slightly different lens here that, you know, that is not on the company, right? So in 2019, and I looked through their release last night, you know, they had, I think, 300 million registered users by this quarter, they have 435 million those are active registered users you know so they're not growing at the speed they're like single digit you know low single digit growth but this is a company that has i think you know, high 40s gross margins here. And, you know, I don't know, I kind of look at this and I look at the expected EPS growth somewhere in the mid to high teens. I look at revenue growth expected to be, you know, high single digits with that sort of margin structure and those sorts of users. And I'm looking at it trading 13 times this year, 12 times next, I I bought some on the opening today, you know, like again, trading near a 52 week low, maybe it's a bit of a trade. I think the innovation is really um, the issue. And what you just said, I heard you say it on air, It's like the banks figure this out, right? They're like, this is ours to lose, and that's why they've been investing so heavily in it.
2: At the same time, you know, I I hear your comment on user numbers and Venmo, PayPal is head and shoulders above its competition, but also has this cool factor that the big banks don't have. I mean, over the weekend, I was at a farmer's market. Obviously, don't bring any cash with me anymore, but I paid by Venmo easily and quickly even gave a tip to the band that was playing (laughs) via Venmo, um, which is something, by the way, you could do in China years and years ago. That's just catching on here. Um, But the idea is that maybe PayPal is not doing a very good job in monetizing and cross-selling some of its products in a way that maybe Block is doing a little better, and part of that. I mean, we know that Dan Schulman, the current CEO, is going to be stepping down, but they it doesn't even sound like they're close to finding a replacement. Meanwhile, they've given up some good talent. I think about Bill Reddy, who's now leading Pinterest. Remember, there was those rumors that PayPal would acquire Pinterest and everyone was scratching their heads. But hey, if you acquire Pinterest and get Bill Reddy back into the company, that doesn't seem like such a bad deal to me. Because remember, he was the founder of Braintree and Venmo, which PayPal acquired, and that really led to their explosive growth.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. And, you know, I noticed that there was Tim Chaito over at Credit Suisse downgraded the stock today to a neutral and, and he's considered a, a good analyst, a very good analyst in the fintech space. And I just find it interesting to downgrade the stock, you know, here basically at multi-year lows after you've been riding this thing. And he's citing some of the uncertainty about a, a management transition, the commoditization, just basically the service and then the pressure on the margins on on some of the payments, whether it be peer-to-peer or, or merchant payments. And, you know, I mean, to me, I kind of like to look at things the other way. I mean, I would have been short this thing, that whole ramp on the way up, you know, because that didn't make any sense. But getting down here, I think at the valuation is basically the balance sheet that they have, and the users, if they are able to better monetize those existing users, and then maybe they've cut costs enough, you know, I, I, I don't know, to me, I just think that the opportunity on the management front is really interesting. Do you have some thoughts there? Because I actually haven't given that um, a lot of thought. And if it Was somebody, you know, some big luminary, whether it be from traditional finance that actually has some sort of, you know, kind of tech bonafides, that could be really interesting to its stock that's trading this cheap.
2: (laughs) I, I, I I don't know if, if our listeners aren't seeing, I scrunched up my nose when you said maybe someone from the traditional banking space. I don't know. I'm, I'm less optimistic on that front. But I do think that there are some interesting candidates. And let's not forget that it was the PayPal mafia that has spread out and created some of the most innovative companies of the last decade plus. There's a Max Levgin who's done a lot at a firm, but it turns out by now pay later isn't such a good business. You get someone like that back at the company. There's also Sarah Fryer who was the CFO of Square, who's extremely well regarded on Wall Street. Next door, I think it's below a billion dollars now. That's been a really tough go. But you know, I think there's people out there, and I, your point on opportunity is not lost to me. I think is that they do have a have an incredible opportunity here. But how long can you wait for it? And maybe that was behind some of the bearishness in that credit Suisse note.
0: Yeah, the, the Max Levchin one is a really interesting one because it takes me back to, and one of the comments that I heard on the call is that, and this is more maybe commentary as it relates to the consumer, you know, a lot of the spend that you see, you know, from a PayPal or a Venmo is discretionary. So if you're worried about the consumer, you're worried about the economy, that would be one thing that you would kind of just say transaction volume, volumes coming down in a recessionary environment. And then you think about just that what they had to say about they're seeing more use of buy now, pay later, you know, again, to your point, about that as a business model, um, not particularly great, but could there be a sort of Aqua hire and figure out a better way to use. Listen, a firm when you think about where they had their early success was with you know companies like Peloton, high dollar amounts that you could spread out over multiple years. You know, in, in a zero interest rate environment, and you know like some of the dynamics as it relates to the pandemic with consumer savings and all that sort of stuff that made perfect sense. But in a tougher environment, that could be more difficult. When you think about Block or Square, where it's trading, it is basically trading at the market cap of what they paid for. Afterpay in the summer of 2021, and that brings me back to the fact, and and you know, Trevor and I talk about this a little bit. You know, when they made that bid for Afterpay, you know, I think it was equivalent to like 30 billion dollars, and maybe cash and stock. At this point, Amazon had the ability to buy a firm, but they did not, right? And they did that partnership. So to me, maybe a firm looks interesting. Maybe it looks interesting for some of the tech. Maybe some of the um, established relationships that they have with merchants, and obviously for Max. Yeah. Yeah, not so much.
2: Again, the commoditization, why not build it in-house since so many people are.
0: Well, let me ask you this. What about like, you know, at a a time when they were thinking about buying a Pinterest, which was that, what, a year and a half ago or so, you know, they were clearly, you know, had the market cap and the currency to be an acquirer. Do you think that with, you know, a 70-ish or so, Billion dollar market cap. I mean, I, I don't think in this regulatory environment, you could have a, one of the big tech platform companies buy them. You know, if you think about an Apple, they're not going to do it. They have a lot of success with Apple Pay and they're pushing into, you know, obviously the Apple Card and savings. I'm just curious, do you think that there's anybody out there that could absorb a company of this size?
2: A PayPal or Pinterest. a Pinterest?
0: A PayPal from a strategic standpoint. Tough.
2: Yeah, I don't think I think big tech is going to have regulatory issues. And I think what's the reason for big banks to do so? Sure, the user base that younger, um, more active user base, but I think that they're that could be it. But how much are they going to pay? I think it's still probably too rich for a a bank to absorb when they're facing their own set of problems. Yeah, and so it'll be interesting it'll
0: to see how this thing bottoms out. You know, we're in an environment where we're going to talk a little bit about some of the valuations that where some of these big tech names are receiving on the back of the excitement about just all the integration of these large language models and their different businesses. And then on the flip side of this, it really feels like unless that you have little faith in what PayPal just guided to and some would say it might look conservative, but on a valuation standpoint, it just looks like it's getting awfully cheap. Google I.O. is, is as the time you're listening, to this is going to be kind of kicking off here on Wednesday, May 10th. And it was interesting, Dee, that I don't know if you caught this, Google today at the opening was trading near 110. That was like an eight month high. So there's a lot of excitement that some of their early mishaps with launching Bard and, and some of the other products in and around these kind of generative AI, large language models, you know, they didn't get off to a great start. Microsoft clearly had kind of the pole position with that investment in OpenAI. AI and the release of their Bing search now that they have kind of widely made available to all users. What are the expectations here? I know that CNBC had some reporting um, about some of the products here and it looked kind of excitement, exciting and, and, and investors were kind of buying the stock in anticipation of I.O. Uh,
2: This is Google's to lose, right? I mean, it has been in this space longer than Microsoft, longer than almost anyone. But it sort of lost that momentum earlier this year. I'll be there, by the way, bright and early in Mountain View reporting from the event. Last year, actually, is when I sat down with Sundar Pichai and I was hoping that the CEO would sit down again with us this year, but he's not giving interviews. And I thought that that was interesting as well, because you think about Microsoft's big moment when they were showing ChatGPT and they were talking about how it was going to incorporate with Bing and Satya Nadella sat down with a number of different publications and reporters. The stakes are so high for Google here. You would think that they want to come out and talk about it, talk about how exciting it's going to be. But again, yeah, we're, we're hearing it does seem exciting the way that it's going to be incorporated. Project Maggi. Is that how you say it, or Maggie, Maggie, Maggie,
0: that Magi is it, Magi the Magi, gift for
2: the Magi right for, for that. tomorrow. Yeah, for the n- I. N- nail it. <laughs> I'll ask someone there. I'll nail that, um, you know, but they have a lot at stake here. And I think where they've lost is not on the technology because let me tell you, I use ChatGPT and Bard every day. In most cases, Bard is the much better product. It is more accurate. It is it's just it's just better in my opinion, and this is anecdotal, but you know, just when I use it for my own research purposes. But the problem is that people are going to ChatGPT because it captured the imagination, it captured the mainstream a lot quicker. So I think that Google has been moving cautiously and that's probably a good thing, given how complicated this new platform shift is, but they need a moment, they need a moment at IO to really, you know, a wow, a wow moment to show users that they can be as fun and innovative and as exciting as Microsoft and ChatGPT
0: it's funny, you know, you and I now have been talking about this since December, you know, on a weekly basis. And there's been a lot of great reporting in and around just kind of what the hype might be versus when the rubber hits the road, how these technologies are going to be integrated in products that users are are, you know going to come to rely on. And I think your point, you know, I've tried the Bing chat GPT. And and again, it's purely anecdotal. I just don't find it particularly useful. But when I think about our reliance on Google products and Google's search you know fine those blue links might go away in your search but there might be other ways that they've been quietly and we know that they have right and so that goes back to you said this i think you were one of the first people to remind me of this in like 2015 and 16 i mean sundar basically said we are an ai first company you know and so they make products that people come to rely on and don't think twice about that become verbs you know so the open ai thing when you think about and and again this is kind of front and center for uh, i think a lot of investors but also users you know there's an article in the journal today saying that chat gpt is causing a stock market ruckus well it's been doing that all year and you think about that 10 billion dollar open ai investment and they've gained basically a half a trillion dollars this is microsoft in market cap since doing that so this is going to become something that once the hype sort of abates once we've had all these user conferences all these product launches who's using it how is it helpful to them using it you know what i mean like and then ultimately i think the stock market will arrive at the winners and losers and the not so distant future as the dust settles from all the hype
2: you know you're right and let me contradict myself yes in the short term Google needs that wow moment tomorrow, but they're thinking long term. They've always been thinking long term. And we may look back at this moment, Dan, you know, five, 10 years from now, one year from now, and think, you know what, the winner is ultimately the one that went cautiously, that made less mistakes in doing so. I mean, look at the the Internet 1.0, right? Um, the company Netscape that sort of pioneered the way wasn't the one that we necessarily used after the fact that we built web 2.0 on top of. So it's it's an early, early, early innings for this, and I think we're far from deciding the winner. But more importantly, tomorrow, it's not just capture sort of the mainstream's imagination tomorrow, but I think what's gonna be really important is Google to capture the developers and show them what they can do with these products, because that's really the part of this that matters, what developers are gonna do so that, you know we're not just going on ChatGPT and BARD, but they're integrated in the apps that we're using or will be using.
0: Yeah, no doubt, you know, and it's interesting, you know, just if you just look at the Google stock chart, I have it up here on, on FactSet, and you look at, you know, the start of the year below 90, and it had this huge run up to kind of where it's trading right now at 109 or so um, by early February, and then they had the mishap with the BARD launch after after the open AI, and it got killed, and it got back to 90, and then it went back to 105. It's really been consolidating here, and I think you're right, I, I actually, to differentiate between what they need to do tomorrow, that's really for what investors have perceived, like if there is another big screw up I and mean, the stock's going back to 100, I mean like really simply, now the developers there, these are technological people, they're gonna think about things not through the lens of the stock market, right? And so again- should they. And, and that's the longer term sort of view and that's like I guess the fun part for, for you and me as we have to like think about both of these things as we're talking about them. All right, that is Deirdre Bosa. She is CNBC's host of Tech Check. Debo, I can't wait to check back next week and hear how this Google I.O. went. So thanks for being with me. Thanks, Dan. Stick around for my conversation with Rick Heitzman.
1: Cross River Bank, member FDIC.
0: Welcome back to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am here with Rick Heitzman. He is the CEO and co-founder of First Mark Capital. Um, Rick, welcome. Hey, it's great to be back. We're going to call this section... The view from the boardroom, because you yes. sit on you sit on many boards, and I find it really interesting. You know, um, I, I obviously you and I talk a lot about public markets. We talk a lot about you know companies and industries that you've followed from their infancy and as they make it into the public markets. But I often find some of the things that you're picking up through the conversations with the companies that uh, you obviously sit on the boards of, invested in when they were early stage companies, and you see them to a level of maturity. And I think you guys have just a view on some of the things that are going on in and around the economies, obviously, as it relates to technology and tech spending a little bit. And I think that's really important right now. You know, we just got through the bulk of S&P earnings here. We've heard from all of these companies. They issue their reports. They do the conference calls. They take the questions from analysts and yada, yada, yada. But sometimes some of the stuff that you were seeing going back to when you joined us on the tape in 2021 and then when we started doing this fine pod, OK, computer, you know, some of the things that you were saying that you were seeing through the lens of your companies, through the board meetings and this and that, whatever, was really um, ahead of the curve at what was happening in the public markets. What's the vibe right now? Because generally, I think in the public markets, it's like it was better than expected. After a really bad last year, it feels like with the stock market now, we have the NASDAQ up about 17% of the year, the S&P up about 8%. People feel okay, but is that what you're seeing through these the public markets right now?
1: Well, I think people are feeling at least steadier. Right. And when we, where I'm able to look across, I serve on over a dozen boards. But if you think about the first mark capital portfolio, we're capturing the results in the tenor of over 200 companies. All the way from seed, all the way into the public markets, and trying to get a better sense of, hey, what does this mean? What do we see? And what do we learn? Part of the benefit of us being board members is we're constantly seeing companies across consumer, enterprise, and, and can pick up some trends. And hopefully, what I could share is some of the trends we're, we're picking up from the field. Right? Yeah. You know, this is this is the report from the field. So, a couple of things we're seeing, which are generally on the whole not great. You know, first of all, we're seeing that you know, spending is slowing down enterprise spend is slowing down sales cycles are is, are elongating and people are really looking for a hard ROI on any software infrastructure or application software they're buying which means that it's really hard to sell new products or even existing products into those customers you know, those customers have laid off people, have gone for, to draconian cost cutting, have tried to maximize profitability. So to walk in with, if, if you just fired 10,000 people to walk in and say, hey, I need a million dollars for a new widget. It's not really an open and inviting conversation. Companies are getting through it, but just compared to how they were selling two or three years ago, much differently. And then because of that, you know, it's the cyclical nature or the circular nature of the economy. So if those companies slow, they get a little tighter. You know, they're thinking more about their own performance management among their employee base and their layoffs, hoarding their cash, and all of a sudden it, you know it begins to kind of touch on a little bit of the crisis of confidence. Well,
0: it's interesting that you mentioned that, right? So, uh, you know, you, you've been talking about, I think in the start of 2022, that these companies, they have to cut costs. The easiest way to do it right now um, is to, to kind of lower headcount, especially exactly. after the headcount growth that you saw in 2020, or the back half of it into 2021, and many of these kind of high-tech companies. Then what they did is they had to kind of like like sign up for a lot of licenses of, of yeah. software. They added to their, um, their cloud, you know what I mean, capacity exactly. and well, everything they, they, like that.
1: If you're growing your employee base, by 25% a year, and everybody gets everything from single sign-on authentication software to expense management software, all those software providers thought they were geniuses because they were growing their, IR, their ARR 25% by a customer. Everyone was getting paid and everyone felt great about it. Now, as employee bases are contracting – that's having the opposite effect.
0: Yeah, so so it's interesting. And, and again, going back to the public markets and what we kind of heard from, let's say Amazon's AWS. I mean, they're going to have their slowest, you know, year-over-year revenue growth in in years. I mean, almost ever, right? Well,
1: everyone's like cloud, cloud, cloud. Yeah. They couldn't get into too much of the cloud. If you have an employee that loves, you know, Google Cloud versus AWS, yeah. you get them both. And uh, you know, it seemed cheap, and you know, no one was ever going to be t- terribly concerned. And now we're seeing we actually seen a fair amount of companies. We just signed a term sheet for one that basically tries to optimize your code to decrease your cloud costs. And cloud costs are becoming so important, not only for the big companies, but even the small companies that companies are being formed to lower those costs. And that's kind of the part of the cycle we're in where cost-cutting's cool again.
0: Yeah. Well, I I mean, listen, you know, we've seen a lot of companies rewarded for cutting those costs in the public markets. And I guess from your standpoint, and we'll talk a little bit about the funding environment. You said you just signed a term sheet. I mean, one one of the things that I think a lot of, at least founders that I talk to, you know, no one wants to do down rounds, right? But everybody wants to increase their kind of runway, you know what I mean, in in a very uncertain um, environment. So I'm just curious, is that why we're going to see another round of 2023 of cost cuts, because as we get further, as that that, that runway got extended from whatever that last capital in, they're going to need to demonstrate, you know, further discipline on cost to, to be able to kind of get, you know, as, as much of a valuation is justifiable relative to their last well, round. Or just
1: extend their life. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of companies out there who have not hit their milestones. Let's say they cut headcount and then they're saying, well, because we cut headcount, we can't hit our milestones because we can't hit our milestones. We can't raise capital and therefore we, we have to cut more headcount. And you know, they're in that death spiral. So what you're seeing now is companies that aren't hitting their milestone have a cash out date. Do they cut more? What do they do? And there are hundreds of companies, maybe even thousands of companies that are really gonna have that moment of truth In the next one year.
0: So did, did, and you and I talked about this a little bit last month, but you know, now we have a little more time in between the Silicon Valley bank failure. I mean, has that made things that much more difficult? You keep talking, listen, we know that Fed funds is at 5%. We know the cost of capital is higher, right? Like, and it just, and that changes lots of different business models, but access to credit is also, uh, you know, a situation. Now we know that, you know, there are some, you know, institutions that are stepping in that, uh, you know, in the place of this, but I'm just curious, are you you starting to see a different push and pull between venture capital and venture debt? And, and how are you advising some of your portfolio companies, which maybe you're not interested in re-upping. You want to see them succeed, but you want to kind of like like help them bridge a sort of gap, if you well, will. You,
1: you want to extend your runway, hit as many milestones, kind of get through this choppy economic period. Uh, and obviously you could do that through equity or debt. The debt markets are, are not closed. Surprisingly, a lot of people predicted the end of Silicon Valley Bank might be the end of venture debt. Uh, it's it's definitely it – was a dampening on venture debt with uh, nothing else but less players. And even some of the other super regional banks were providers of venture debt. Uh, so they're obviously less interested in providing those. And obviously the money center banks who have acquired companies – are now getting more interested and active in
0: the market. So is that was that the big takeaway, though? Like, uh, again, you know, First Republic is a, is a special case. It's not that similar to Silicon Valley. But, you know, the fact that J.P. Morgan, who has a pretty good tech franchise, okay. you know what I mean, they didn't rush in to buy the carcass of Silicon Valley Bank. So a lot of uh, like folks like myself were presuming that they don't want to be in the business that Silicon Valley Bank was in. They thought by the scale of the bank that they had and the investment bank that they built that they could serve the... Like, like the tech community, the private tech community, the way that they wanted to serve them, not the way that Silicon Valley Bank built this franchise to do so.
1: I think maybe not. Um, as we talked as we've talked to them and obviously we're customers of JP Morgan, uh, you know probably a hundred different ways, yeah. uh, even as first Mark, uh, you know I think they want to figure out the right way to serve each level of customer. I think they have identified that there's a vacuum in this in the smaller tech world. They probably would have been interested in Silicon Valley Bank had it not been had it been a company, not a carcass. Yeah. Uh, they probably would have been more interested in First Republic had it been more functional because they had a nice base. And now they kind of have an opportunity of two different levels. They have the opportunity to have you know the J.P. Morgan. You know, large company, large bank, large technology firm, trusted advisor, but then maybe even a sub-brand of First Republic who's taking care of their smaller clients, who's taking care of their tech clients, whether it's real estate clients, whether they partnerships. So I think that um, that is a real market opportunity. Two, I would say two of the three biggest providers of financial services uh, we're probably three of the four, if you include Signature, First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank, you know, are, dono- are, are in some some state of disrepair. And that created a huge vacuum. And that vacuum, I think some of the money center banks should get into because, you know, it's it's how Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic grew. You started with a company that's small. You build that relationship over time. And like any other good bank, you mine their wallet across products.
0: All right. So so before we get to the consumer and you guys have like a really great insight on that, I want to get to some of the, the other things that are kind of, you know, um, that are kind of pushing at least stocks in in the public markets around a little bit, maybe some of this kind of generative AI stuff, because I'm sure that's some of the stuff that is hot, hot, hot right now in the private markets is obviously hot in the public markets, but there's very few ways to sort of express that. But I want to go back to something. I had a great conversation last week with Dan Niles of Satori Funds, and and Dan, and you've known Dan for a long time, and he made this point as we were talking about the banking crisis, uh, this regional banking crisis. He's like, listen, financial services companies, okay, are like 11 to 12 percent of the total enterprise spend. So when you think about what we've just been through, something that came out of nowhere. And and granted, you and I are close enough to capital market activities to know that there hasn't been a real IPO in in a year and you know like yeah, yeah and, and a lot of M&A activity slowed down and, and and investment banks were getting smaller. There's no doubt about that, okay? And then trading and and a lot of the associated stuff has kind of slowed down dramatically. Okay. So investment banks were going to get smaller no matter what. Now all of a sudden you've had all these regionals taken out and we know the history of the financial crisis is that when you buy distressed banks, you basically end up folding in bits and pieces of it into your bank and then the rest is just gone. I mean, it just goes away, right? So what does that mean for you when you think about that? And you've been around the financial services business for a long time. You know, I have to assume that enterprise spend just organically in an industry like this is just going to be lesser and, and a big contributor, which would be financial yeah, services. financial
1: services, tech is a, is a big contributor to tech spend for obvious reasons. Uh, and financial services, especially a lot of our companies, we maintain great relationships with the CTOs and the CIOs of the most, uh, most of the major investment banks and commercial banks uh, that tend to be centered in and around New York and you know there's probably less apt to spend earnings are, earnings are down the banks are not as profitable as they might have been and what you're seeing and then this consolidation is is another
0: impact of that so not the, only that to regulatory too so the other thing is I'll just say if you think about when one of these banks gets put into receivership and I know you know this is like okay that their deposits are backed by, by the FDIC insurance fund right well all the major banks pay into that fund right and so if we're going to have increased regulation if we're going to have larger reserves in that fund that's going to be a drag on the earnings of the major money center banks too and therefore okay so like there's going to be further cost cuts it's and, not and just complexity organic
1: complexity slow down decisions yeah, right yeah. so okay if you're jp morgan you have to bring in the first republic guys what kind of systems do they have what does their cto say and you know with all the acquisitions jp morgan's done it's always a hard thing for them to make decisions around what's really going on how does this affect all my different heterogeneous systems across all the different parts of the bank just adding complexity slows everything down so it it doesn't bode well uh for you know and enterprise spending on the whole from that, especially from that sector, but there are green shoots that we're seeing, right? Yeah. There you hit on generative AI and you're starting to see.
0: You know, AI really driving ROI in the enterprise. So let me ask you this, because, you know, we spent a time, and I just got done talking to George Bosa, and, you know, we we all remember, and she reminded me a couple weeks ago, that Sundar Pichai, in 2015, at maybe one of their I.O. conferences, maybe one of the first ones that he kind of headlined, you know, he declared that we are an AI-first company. There's been plenty of tech companies that are looking around right now and looking at all these Johnny-come-latelys talking about AI and this and that or whatever, and we had that great conversation with your partner, Matt Turk, a a, a few weeks ago with with his big report that he puts out on... Um, We've been all over AI for decades, and you guys have been talking about it for a very long time. So when you look around and you see all of these companies now reporting earnings and and using the term AI like forty-seven times on a one-hour call, you know it seems a bit goofy, okay? Um, But talk to me a little bit about it because in an environment where you know valuations were getting depressed in the private markets for a whole host of reasons, um, you have folks like yourself who have capital to deploy, but you start waiting because you start playing this game a little bit. Like, they're going to come to me. And then all of a sudden, you have this thing that happens, and which is like, you know, uh, it just happens, right? And so, like, you're seeing it play out a little bit in the public markets with some of the major platform companies. There's very few ways to express it in the public markets, which almost makes it that much more interesting in the private markets. So talk to me about, like, where you guys are right now, where you're thinking about that, and where valuations are investing in the space in the private markets.
1: So, um, you know, venture capitalists by nature, one of the great parts about them is they tend to be optimists. And we tend to be looking for what could happen and what could I be excited about. You know, and that's what switched over my career from the Internet to mobile to social to geolocation. And we were kind of stuck. It was and I think we've talked about this over the last two years. There wasn't the next big thing. And then, you know, so economy was shitty. You know, te- uh, tech multiples were contracting. You know, and now the what's the next big thing? And the things we might have thought was the next big thing, or some people thought were the next big things of crypto and some of those sectors are clearly not the next big yeah. thing. So, what is the next big thing that's going to ignite a next generation of entrepreneurs and venture capital? And I think it's become clear that you know AI is now having its moment, and you know AI is everywhere. AI tells your Uber driver where to go, right? I mean, AI is is, you know, helps you figure out, you know, how to, how to pay for your coffee. It's, it's really become part of all applications, and maybe it caught people's imagination because ChatGPT consumerized it, right? So it was able to put AI in the hands of consumers and was the fastest-growing consumer technology ever, uh, as everybody was trying out having ChatGPT write their term paper. And then, so as things have changed, you know, why does it matter for VC? So it's, A, it's, it's fundamental – and we, we see uh, step function changes being made. And then on the enterprise side, we're seeing something that's super important. We're seeing that, a- that AI is finally able to do jobs in an ROI-positive way. Because especially in this environment that we just talked about, being able to d- deliver ROI-positive software is incredibly important. And we're seeing some of our porco- uh, portfolio companies doing everything from processing forms that a human used to process and y- doing it using AI. Uh, Creating uh, what people are calling generative AI, being able to create media, PowerPoint presentations, video, text, podcasts with just AI, all those things are happening. And not only are they happening and it's working, but you're able to generate real ROI.
0: It's interesting because, you know, Dan Niles reminded me of a quote. He quoted it last week on the pod, Bill Gates. He said that, you know, transformative tech, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, is much, you know, it's it's really overhyped in the near term and it's very un- underhyped in the long term. And, and so um, I think that's interesting. I think for me, as somebody who's really focused, obviously, on the public markets, and I just said this, there's very few ways to express this view as a, as a pure play, right? Yeah. So if you think you're trading a $2 trillion market cap company like Microsoft based on a 10 Billion dollar investment in OpenAI and it's gained a half a trillion dollars since they made that investment. On that, it's probably not going to play out in, in in the longer term the way you thought, right? And if you're selling Google, you know a 1.2 trillion dollar, whatever market cap company, a company that literally has staked their 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 future on this for years, not just this year, you know what I mean? And you're selling that, saying that they're going to be a loser. That's probably not the best way um, to do it either. But does does it worry you because you've seen these hype cycles, and I know that's embedded into um, a lot of the, the the technology investing that you've been doing over the last 25 years or so. Do you worry that some of these companies are going to raise money at, at, at basically valuations that they'll never be able to grow into? Because the big platform companies will realize most of the technological gains in and around their existing you know, platforms yeah. that they have in their well, user I mean, base. We've
1: heard that for years, right? You know, I got first kind of venture capital. Why can't IBM do it? Then why can't Microsoft do it? Then why can't Google do it? And, you know, they have a million, you know, a million engineers to work a million hours and they should be able to do anything. Uh, and, and you hope that, the, that you know, especially the tools being as good as they are, that individuals or small teams that work really hard, have a little bit more ingenuity and have a ton more focus can make
0: substantial progress. Yeah. All right. L- let's talk a little bit about consumer. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting to me about this earnings period is that, You know, a couple of the biggest winners in the public markets in tech were Microsoft and Apple, um, and trading very near like you know 52 week highs, if not have made new ones after that. And then on the flip side of that, there's a handful of consumer names that seemingly put up like disappointing results. And I'll just throw Pinterest, uh, Snap, Lyft. Okay, so this was part of this kind of last um, IPO class, if you will, um, of, of tech stocks, and. They're trading really poorly. I think all three were down at least 20% after the results. They've continued to go down. And I think what's interesting, and I always find this interesting about markets and where we are as far as maybe a rally or where we are in a sell-off, is when you start to see dispersion among similar sorts of names, similar sorts of stories, but investors start getting a bit more picky about results. So, So I'm curious, like, your thoughts on that, because right now I look at a lift or I look at a snap. There's no low, low enough. These are hat sizes now, right? You know what I mean? And that's a dangerous place to be when you're a uh, you know when you're not a profitable company on a gap basis in a market that's a lot more sensitive about valuations with interest rates much higher. You're a number two player or number three or number four player in your space. I think Pinterest is a little bit different of a story in my yeah, opinion. I mean, I, mean,
1: I think it's it's hard to compare Pinterest to Lyft, yeah. but I think what you're saying is everybody's kind of reporting mixed results. Everyone's giving a little bit of unclear guidance because people are conservative about where the consumer is going to be, and that's that's creating a whole bunch of uncertainty in the market, uh, especially in media advertising-based models. Um, Lyft, I think, has, has separate issues because no one's really quite sure why they need to exist, and we've talked about that before. You know, Does someone need to own this? Does someone need to... Uh, can they operate independently or does anyone really care? I would say Snap and Pinterest, it's you know, what do advertisers say? Are you seeing advertising weakness, especially if you know the company's not a meta or a Google with uh, a million salespeople and being a must buy? So a lot of those companies gave mixed uh, results and mixed guidance. And then you're still trying to figure out some of them got punished, a uh, Pinterest or a Snap. Some of them got rewarded with mixed guidance. Uh, and you're, um, I
0: think most people are still trying to make make heads or tails. With it. You tend to be an optimist, but in, in life, but also in your business, and you think about you're always looking for opportunities. You're always looking to back great founders, great ideas, great teams, all that sort of stuff. W- where do you feel like we are? Because I feel like you know you and I have had conversations where you've been pretty cautious, um, well before. I, and I'll just use the you know the, this is the guidepost for me before the Nasdaq topped out in late 2021 because some of the stuff that you were seeing in different parts of the Market it could have been structural like what you were seeing in in the IPO market the quality of companies that were coming to the IPO the sort of deals that were being done with SPACs the sort of bubbles that were oh, being created around Web three and yeah they, it yeah. was a
1: bunch of, it was a bunch of nonsense for most of so, so where are you right
0: now because I think before the SVB and this little you know the regional banking crisis which is not. Over, I think yeah. we can all agree it's it's whether it's the third, fourth, fifth, it's something like that. We're yeah. we're not there yet. Where are you as far as where you think we get back to some sort of new normal that seems comfortable to be deploying capital in a way where you don't have to worry too much about macro, you don't have to worry about geopolitical, you don't have to worry about runaway inflation, you don't have to worry about interest rates going from five to ten percent. I mean, these are all things that are no, legitimately like concerns. That,
1: that was, I would say, more concerns around the beginning of the year. You know, Powell said to Things that had different effects. He basically said, Hey, we're going to pause and see what happens. But we also think, yeah, you know, we're going to be right around 0% growth. So, you know, right around a recession, if not a recession. Which
0: means stagflation, because, like, the other yes. thing that is really important is that, you know, the idea of their target inflation rate to the downside of 2% and the CPI last yeah. month, it was at 5%. That's going to take longer than people expect. Yeah. So, if they're already telling us we're going to have flat growth ish, yeah. you know what I mean? And we're going to have inflation higher that's not great for risk assets and i have to assume like this is why one of the reasons why you're going we're going to start hearing the term green shoots more and more as we get into the summer but that doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet
1: i 100% agree i think we're going to start seeing green shoots i think as people were waiting to say okay we we've had enough and everybody said you know it'll settle in around 5% That'll be enough. That'll probably be overshooting because the Fed tends to over, always overshoot, probably overshoot, create a little bit of, of stagflation. CPI will still be high. But all of a sudden, you begin to establish rules of the road, right? Okay, so we think this is you're not going to get crushed if you put more dollars in. You're starting to see a renormalization in the market. So people feel like, hey, interest rates are probably not going to go much higher we have a pretty good sense of where the economy's going and entrepreneurs have reset their expectations and reset their plans for 2023 so you're you're not seeing folks miss by as much as what they might have in the first half of 22 and therefore you're seeing people start to wade back into the market we're seeing deals starting to get done obviously generative ai and ai are getting done at wild multiples 20 plus percent times uh 20 plus times revenue you're seeing, but just application software, consumer business, getting done a couple times revenue, which reflect historical norms, and the market's starting to thaw. I still think there's going to be some black swans out there, some things that blow up, not dissimilar to SVB. If no one predicted it, and it creates fear, uncertainty, and doubt for you know for a month or two, but I think we're probably on the backside. I think you know you're seeing interest rates being the first thing. You know, renormalization of budgeting and being able to predict your results being the second thing. And I think the big thing that oh, nothing gives people more confidence than making money. So no one's been making any money for the last couple of years in venture. There's been no IPOs. And there's no IPOs, that tends to depress MA because M&A because IPOs tend to be the stalking horse for most major MA. So if there's no IPOs, no big M&A. People have been uh, marking down their portfolios to reflect market multiples and then haven't gotten liquidity and therefore naturally are, have less confidence. And, you know, the thing you need to really reaccelerate people's confidence is not only having rules of the road, but, hey, there's a gold ring at the end of this. And the IPO market, which I don't think will open until either the very end of this year or beginning of next year – then begins to say, all right, we now have a functional market. You could invest in a company. You could help grow that company. The company will continue to grow, hit their milestones. And at the end of it, whether that's five or whether that's 15 years later, you have a multibillion-dollar exit and being created a great company. And unless all those things, you can line all those things up, everyone's going to continue to play scared and if people continue to play scared the markets are going to be not going to be really functional.
0: Well, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, this is not a black swine because I think it's on most people's bingo card, but you know, if you think about the disruption we had to the global economy with Russia, you know, invaded yeah. Ukraine last year, if China were to do anything from an embargo to some sort of attack, I mean, as it relates to Taiwan, think yeah. of like the, this this Nvidia, you know, AI chip bubble that has kind of been you know yeah. like that that thing pops, and if you think about it, this could be actually a you know a way in which if the Russians wanted to disrupt you know some of the kind of the oil like like market yeah. and that sort of thing, and they clearly did natural gas. Think about like what what would happen with the global sort of chip in, in environment, and if you think about all the manufacturing, uh, that I, goes I think on, that
1: would be the. Uh, it would be one of the worst things that could happen yeah. for the tech industry because yeah. it would break the supply chain. Yeah. You wouldn't have chips, and that's not just chips for PCs for it's everything. A phone. It's Auto. everything. Let's, Auto, I mean, refrigerators. You can't the, buy a refrigerator yeah, yeah. without chips. You can't do anything without chips. And just even putting some uncertainty around that. You know, if you throw some, you know, uh, Russian ships, in, you know, in the in the region. Obviously, there's a ton of NATO ships in the region now. You know, just anything around that to create uncertainty would be terrible. So I I don't think I think that's unsightly. I think you're right. That's on some people's bingo card. It wouldn't necessarily be considered black swan. It would be a a disaster. Yeah, It would
0: be a disaster. No one wants that. I mean, I I guess my point is when you think about, you know, um, Tim Cook was in India a few weeks ago, and they're talking about what a huge market is and and all the kind of reshoring, reorienting supply chains that have been around for 25 years for U.S. multinationals. I think at some point President Xi and and the Chinese Communist Party, they look at this kind of trend and they say to herself, you know what? Like, we're just going to go about doing things that we want to do. And, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, you know this, that the Chinese people – they think Taiwan is part of China. It's yeah. just the, it's just the West that that doesn't. And I'm not, uh, you, you know, know I'm not wait, wait, suggesting... which kind of
1: rhymes like the, uh, with the Ukraine.
0: Yeah, hundred oh, percent. And it's a very similar situation. And President Xi and President Putin have gotten obviously pretty cozy here. So that's one of the things that I think could be very disruptive. You know, in, in a but there, way. there
1: could be more banking crises. There could be more bankruptcies, personal and corporate bankruptcies. That's already spiked a lot. And what are the repercussions of that? Obviously, the, the debt ceiling. It's going to – everyone thinks it's going to be worked out, but under what terms is that worked out? You know, is there going to be some social unrest? And then obviously going into, you know, who are the candidates and what what are the repercussions of those potential candidates winning in 24? So there's a lot of things – That could really mess it up.
0: Well, I guess for an optimist, we're leaving this conversation on a bit of a down note. All right. Well, that was Rick Heitzman. He is the CEO and founder of First Mark Capital. Rick, thanks for coming back. I really appreciate you sharing all of those insights. Awesome, Dan. Thank you. When we come back, my conversation with Trevor Marshall. Trevor Marshall, CTO, co-founder of Current. I am in your fine offices here. This is where the risk reversal media Audio, empire, and video now. You can see all these nice little cameras in here. We are in the current Risk Reversal studios.
3: Welcome back. Yeah, thank you, and welcome back. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, to I, I kind of see you in the
0: cafeteria, at yeah. the, you know, getting a little coffee here and there, that sort of thing. So we we do chit-chat. But you and I have kind of, um, you know, we've been talking about some of the things offline that we're going to talk about today. You were last on the pod uh, late March, and a lot has happened. I think we we're kind of looking ahead at what we might hear from some of your um, some of your peers, some of your competitors, some of the the public market participants, and current space here, and we've gotten a lot—not just from the classic fintechs, but also. Apple. You know, this is one that I think you guys have kind of kept an eye on because of. And we talked about this a little bit with Stuart um, last week on on the tape. You know, because of that installed base, because of what most Americans have in their pockets, they have two billion iOS users the world over. Here, we know that their market share in North America is far greater than than other places outside North America. Here, but they're really pushing hard over the last few years into financial products. And so, let's talk about the announcement that I think it was last month, but they sent, spent some time talking about um, this savings account, this high-yield savings account. This is a place that you guys have been in for a while, your yield has been going up over the course of the last, call it a little more than a year as the Federal Reserve has been like raising the Fed funds rate. And this is something that for you guys, I think you always expected to have competition, traditional finance. That was your mission to go disrupt them. But now you have these big tech platforms. Let's talk a little bit about what Apple had to say about this, the uptake of this savings account. One of the things just real quickly to me is not that interesting is like you kind of have to what well, you do have to have an Apple card to get the savings rate on this account, which they just introduced. They're doing it through Goldman Sachs. Just kind of talk to me about what you guys have been thinking about as they've been pushing into financial services and then ultimately this savings account because this is something that you guys are, um, are you competing with? Like, give give me a sense of how you're viewing this.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to Apple, it's really about the last mile delivery of financial services. So it's very much, you know, Amazon's whole take and, and why they're so successful is because they're controlling that final step out to the out to the consumer, so I think it's it's super interesting that they're they're moving into the space. Well, we don't really compete directly just because of our our customer base is, is fairly different. Like it's 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 not super easy to qualify for an Apple Card and for all of the uh, components of of that offering. But I think it's really interesting that they're moving in this direction because of that that relationship that they get to have with the customer. You know, they are really the gatekeepers in many ways to whatever gets released sort of on their platforms. And there's been, you know, a ton of uh, examples you can look at for them leveraging that that influence. So it's definitely something to watch.
0: I, I always go back. to, Did you ever watch that show, Mister Robot? It was on. Uh, oh yeah. oh it was yeah, so good, right? Like yeah. that, that's that's probably right in your wheelhouse, yeah. is it's it? It's fun. And, and so, like you know, the whole idea of E Corp, right? Like it was kind of like a play on Enron, which happened to be like an evil, you know, energy company. But it really, like like to me, when I was, I was thinking Amazon, right? And so, um, like a little bit, right? Like as they're finding their way, and so. Do you you see them as competitors? Do you see an Amazon, you know, like they have buy now, pay later, right? They could have bought, they did that deal with a firm, I think, two years ago. I think you and I have talked about that a little bit at the time where like Square bought that. It was an Afterpay, right, or something like that. And they could have bought a firm, but they decided to partner with them. Like, do you guys see yourselves like now having to focus a bit more on, on a lot of these platforms? Like, do you see... Everybody has competition. If you have a financial relationship with a tech company, are they ultimately going to be competition for FinTech?
3: I think it, it is more of a, like, how, how do they enable our products? Because ultimately, you know, we deliver our services through an app, which is available through the App Store. We deliver our cards through tokenization inside of Apple Pay. And that, they're a critical part. They're alright right, let's, yeah. let's, let's talk about that. Because yeah. you and I, you're, you're one of the few folks that, um, you know, we
0: talk – crypto uh, with, with. And so am I right to say when I hear tokenization, that's very much about crypto? And, and again, we've talked about like how you and Stuart started this company with kind of the ethos of tokenization always in, in the back of your mind here. What does that mean to somebody who's just using your app, right, and
3: using the services and stuff like that? So like, like I'm just curious. The, like- the math under the hood is the same. Yeah. The uh, sort of ecosystem is, is pretty different. Um, and I, I think generally Apple has been a big part of accelerating the adoption of digital card payments. Um, And what's really interesting and actually like a big area of innovation that's happening now is how much tokenization is accelerating. Apple Pay adoption was pretty minimal five years ago, and now we look at our own customers and 70% of them are using it on a regular basis. So this has been like over the last five to 10 years, a huge change in the way that people actually interact with payments. And Apple's a big part of pushing that forward because they've been creating a lot of the standards at the same time, you've been seeing the networks start to evolve to in, take enriched information um, into the transaction flow, the authorization flow. So it's adding a level of security. It's adding a level of data transparency. That's actually really healthy for the consumer because they can get far more security on all of their transactions when you encode things like, where is the device? And did they use face ID? And you know sort of all of the additional value that comes with this the flip side of it is you've got big distribution channels, aka Apple or Google, controlling that last mile delivery um, for the services. So the balance between really great customer-friendly functionality, you know, you're know, you not inserting that chip waiting 5, 10 seconds for that transaction to go. You just use it on your phone. You don't need to bring your wallet with you. With the flip side of like, okay, well, now there's really kind of one way that this is getting delivered.
0: So what do you guys think? I mean, um, you know, when you think about your product roadmap a little bit, and, and again, you know, payments has always been a big part of this, but you guys offer a lot of other services. Stuart kind of spilled the beans a little bit. He hinted to the fact that you guys have a credit product coming out and you really want to service, you know, your customers. You want to give them access to all the the financial products that they will need in this kind of, you know, I listen, I I, I just see it. And again, I know you guys don't like to be tagged with like the, the youth, you know, financial product experience, but my kids use current and I have the app and I interface with it and I see, you know, the ease of this, they will never have a checkbook. They will never go to, you know, a, a banking branch. I mean, they're, you know, like that sort of thing. And, and so to me, I, I find it all pretty fascinating. And I all of us are going less and less and using those sorts of parts. So when I think about that though, okay, so I think about the fact that to get this app, let's go back to the Apple thing for a second. To get this this 4.15% savings account and they don't have any limits on it, this or whatever, I need to have an Apple card, okay? So the average, you know, Apple card rate is going to be, mid to high teens, maybe higher than that. you know. And I think about it from the standpoint, I'm like, okay, if I'm putting my personal finance cap on as like CNBC guy or whatever, I'm going to say to people, well, maybe you shouldn't actually be earning 4.15% on a savings account if you're running a credit balance on your Apple card because you wanted to YOLO the latest Apple product and you wanted to do a buy now pay or something like that, right? Like, And you're paying 18 or 19% on that. Like, talk to me a little bit about that because I think your customer base is a little different. I think Stuart used the term on our pod last week. He didn't call it the average American. He called it the normal American because, and and I like that. So talk to me a little bit about that because I also know that financial literacy is important to you and to your client base also because you guys use this expression. These are people who are living paycheck to paycheck. You are trying to offer them a user experience and a level of service that they won't get
3: from the incumbent banks. Yeah. I mean, the the product itself, even if Apple is controlling that last mile delivery, mm-hmm. the product innovation is happening in places like Current, where right. we're thinking through, well, what are the things that our customer, the normal American, need? Um, and they need credit building, they need savings, and they need those things to come together in a way that is ultimately improving their financial outcomes. And so We've spent a lot of time thinking about our user, thinking about the products that are formed to that user. And, and then we leverage Apple for that last mile delivery. And then we have a direct relationship with our customers as well. But I think the products that they're putting out present a different value and have a different value prop than the the sort of the other components that they have, which is facilitating Apple Pay, facilitating sort of that that last mile in the app store. I don't think that the the competition in the product space, that that's a a very different game than just the requirement of having that that last mile delivery. I mean, this
0: is not going to move the needle for Apple.
3: Okay, so this is
0: literally, it, it almost
3: reminds me of, you remember the
0: years of the Amazon adding all of those services for Prime and really is just kind of making their platform stickier or their products and services, that sort of thing. So I think about this, that $2 billion installed base, is they want to layer on as many services as possible. We know the hardware business is not a great margin business. And so one of the reasons why, you know, Apple – for over the last five or six years in this really low rate environment before the Fed started raising interest rate, traded at below a market multiple. And now it trades well above a market multiple. And the stock got re-rated because of all the services that they're basically able to offer this big installed base. And so I just think of it like this is never going to move the needle. I think Tim Cook said they had like, I don't know, um, you know, you know, billions and billions of dollars that came to them because of that. But again, I think that probably hits a wall at some point because they're never
3: really going to be in the financial services game. Does that make sense to some degree? We'll see. Yeah. Right. I mean, let's see how they evolve their product roadmap. From what I can see right now, there's still a ton of space for people who have more specific sort of products in mind with a more specific customer. The challenge with working with a 2 billion user install base is that you can't really create something that works for everyone. And I think there's a lot of room for companies um, that are more focused on a specific uh, user base.
0: Yeah, I just see it as like this is a $400 billion revenue company with 43% gross margins. They have basically like 80% of the gross margin in the hardware space in general, in the smartphone space, okay? So when you think about what would move the needle in financial services, look at the multiples that are being paid for lots of, Bank stocks that are basically working off net interest margins, you know, that is, and it's not high, you know know what I mean? So, one of the reasons why FinTech was able to kind of garner um, the multiples that they had over the last five years in the market was because of the the innovation and the disruption that they would apply. So, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the public markets right now. As we speak, it is Tuesday morning, May 9th, PayPal reported earnings last night. Good quarter, um, better than expected operating margins. I think they kind of hinted to some pressure on those margins um, going forward. But here's a company that had a massive pull forward. I think in 2019, I think they had like 300 million registered users. I think as of last night's report at the end of Q1, they had 435 million. They have 35 million merchant accounts. Um, You know, This to me is really interesting. The stock's down 11% today because of worries about further margin pressure. They've cut a lot of costs here. But they're still growing low single digits, I think, in user growth. And now it's about monetizing those users a bit. So I think it's interesting. Stock's at 52-week lows. I'm just full disclosure. I bought a little bit here because the stock trades at 13 times earnings this year expected, 11 times next. Those earnings are expected to grow 15% a year for basically the next two years with high single-digit revenue growth. And again, about a 47 48% gross margin sort of company. And I look at this and I say, this is kind of de-risked from a valuation standpoint. So again, I know that you are not a stock trader, you know, like that sort of thing. But you keep an eye on some of this stuff. And I'm just curious, when you see a stock like this down 80% from its all-time highs – at its highs, it had a bigger market cap than Bank of America, which was astounding. OK, like literally over 300 billion dollars, an 80 billion dollar market cap company. What does that all mean to you? Right. Now? I'm just curious, like from where you stand, because you aspire to be a publicly traded company at some point. And, you know, you look at some of these comps and you look at I'm sure you thought it was absolute bonkers a year and a half ago, two years ago. But maybe is it getting to a point where it's kind of baby with the bathwater down here?
3: Uh, potentially. Um, I I think you have to look sort of at someone like Block as well and how they compare. And I think mostly what you're getting in those types of dynamics is, well, what is the product innovation that's coming to take us to the next level of growth, right? Because even at trading 13 plus X revenues, there's an embedded assumption of there's going to be more product here that will increase monetization and will push sort of the innovation in the space forward. Um, and you know, when you look at sort of what's been released, yes, there's some margin improvements, but you have way more bigger, like way bigger swings being taken by someone like block. And I think they're starting to get credit for that because there's, you're starting to see the cash app growth, which then completes the loop on sort of the merchant and the the consumer and effectively creating a new network through, through cash app. And that's a really big idea and a really big, um, sort of potential. So I think for the, for the companies that really have quite a lot ahead of them, the trust in the product innovation that's going to come through is probably what's being given more uh, credence in, in the market. Yeah.
0: So, so let's talk about like so some of these big platforms that, you know, like again, you know, hundreds of millions, like when you think about social, right, and you, and you think about adoption of products, I mean, there's been very few companies that have been able to hit that kind of billion registered user mark. Obviously, Facebook has done it on a couple different of their properties. Google has it on a handful, like six or seven or something like that. You know, If you look at Snap, you look at Twitter, I mean, TikTok has, I think, maybe just ticked a billion or something. It's just a big number to get to. So when I see, like, a PayPal where, like, if I, like, my parents don't eat, who are 80 years old, they have no idea what Cash App or Venmo is and they will never, you know what I mean? So there's a certain segment of our population um, that will never use these sorts of products but again if you look at like teens 20s somethings 30 somethings they will never use anything but these sorts of things so what are some of the innovations that can be in and around these that can get these to a billion users you know because it seems like payPal is kind of well on its way and square though it seems like our block seems like one that you think has a really good potential to kind of catch up to a payPal and and venmo and and their kind of peer-to-peer payments yeah
3: and- I mean because it's so much more about primacy than it is about just the number of people on the platform. Because if, I, if I'm thinking about just like from a consumer perspective, if I'm hitting an e-commerce checkout, yeah, PayPal's one of the options. But there's nothing really that defends PayPal from being the only button on that page because merchants are incentivized to get as much and as many payments as possible. And ultimately for consumers, that'll go to where the convenience is or where the other value is. So, you know, from just a pure user standpoint, the stickiness is far more important. And so what drives stickiness is convenience, value. And I, I think that, you know, there's there's other, you know, someone like Block, companies like Current, there's other ways of driving that primacy and stickiness through the product itself. And so that's what I'd be looking at more of um, than, than just the number of users. Okay, you
0: mentioned tokenization,
3: and, and, and basically it's under the hood
0: here, you know, um, Square, now Block changed its name. You know how are they using this kind of you know um, crypto ethos like under the
3: hood? Is, are they doing something very different, let's say, than um, than you guys are doing, or let's say than PayPal is doing? Not as far as I know. I, I think from a tokenization on the card network standpoint, that's really just opening up in terms of different credential management that that is available on newer network specs. This is the super payment nerd part of me, but uh, there's a new spec in which merchants communicate with issuers. ISO 20022, it's just way more verbose. There's way more potential for extending and adding data into that authentication flow. That's one of the big areas of innovation that companies that can stay on top of that and start adding in you know risk metrics or skew level information. Who would appreciate that. Okay, so like again, this is me like public markets
0: guy. So like I'm I'm like tearing through PayPal, you know, their press release last night and their, you know, their conference call and I'm listening to the analyst questions. The analysts are not asking those questions, you know, like sell-side analysts. Or so. so who who ultimately appreciates that? Like is it the user that appreciates it? Is ultimately, it the, yeah, yes. like like yeah, ultimately
3: ultimately like what what the innovation is enabling is more control for users over their payments, more visibility in the data, um, and that creates better user experiences, which is what drives stickiness and primacy, right? So ultimately, you look at who has the relationship with the customer and what incremental value can that relationship bring to the customer. There's tangible things like an interest rate that you're earning on your savings. But then there's the, the product value of, I feel more in control of my money. I feel that my money is more safe with this partner. I feel that it's in a more intelligent system. And these are the things that compound and build trust and ultimately increase retention onto the platforms and increase the primacy and the share of wallet. So I think the people who care most about it are the people who are building that relationship with customers because ultimately translating the value that's now available and the visibility and transparency all the way out to the end user and being the first one to do it or the ones to do it best is the opportunity to win more of that customer wallet share.
0: All right, listen, we covered a lot of ground here. I appreciate you weighing in on the Apple, the PayPal, the Square. And that is Trevor Marshall. He's the CTO co-founder of Current, and he is my landlord. So uh, I appreciate you stopping by. Thanks a lot, (laughs) Trevor. Thank you, sir. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.